The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. How's it going, guys? Here we are on the Quirky Dog Podcast. Jess wanted me to fill in. She's got some laryngitis today. (laughs) It's going to be a quiet podcast. Oh, yeah. She's very quiet. We're going to be doing something. It's a little political. It's a little bit controversial, maybe. A little edgy. I don't know. I think it's kind of scammy, personally. (laughs) But we're going to start with the quirky tip of the day. What's that tip, Scott? Hey, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, I just got a a video uh, text from one of my clients, and this is something that happens all the time. All the time. We're working on come when called with your pet dog, any any dog. And what I typically instruct people to do, it's uh, typically a two-person exercise. One person is restraining the the dog. The other person is calling the dog to them. And um, I'm very clear about that. And this woman that... Uh, had been training with me, sent me a video saying, I can't work on cum because the dog won't stay. And she sent a video of the dog. She's trying to get the dog to do a sit-stay, walk away from the dog, and then recall the dog to her. And that's pretty common. The only place that I've ever really seen that is in the CGC. Or in like competitive dog obedience. Or in competitive dog obedience. And even in that case, if you're doing it uh, as part of an exercise for a competition, we would rarely call the dog to us in training because if you call the dog to you every time you tell the dog to sit and stay, they're going to start anticipating and they're going to break that stay and they're going to run to you uh, prematurely. And I tell people, you know, what everyone seems to want to have a good stay. That's the other thing. They want this great stay, uh, but they're destroying it by telling them to sit, stay, and then calling them out of it repeatedly over and over again. So the dog is anticipating. As soon as you say sit, stay, they know, okay, I'm going to be leaving in just a second because they're going to call me. So the tip is don't mix these two exercises together. If you need to work on, you want to work on your uh, come and you're by yourself, you can either take your dog out on a long line in a new environment, let them get interested in the environment, let them sniff back away to get some separation, or you can... Um, have some treats. If they're very food motivated, you can toss a treat away from you. Let them go eat the treat. As soon as they're finished eating the treat, you call them back to you. Throw a treat away so you can get them away from you again. It's an easy way that you can get some reps of calling the dog to you if you're all by yourself. But I just wouldn't recommend doing a sit-stay or a down-stay and then calling your dog out of that repeatedly. Because if your dog has half a brain, as soon as you walk away and turn around, they're already on their way back to you. And the other thing about that is it's a very sterile setup. Like when you're doing a recall out in the real world, it's never that sterile. The dog's normally running after something or running towards something you don't want it to. So it's not a great setup to teach your come command. And no matter how we say do it or don't do it, sometimes our clients get confused. So it's today's quirky tip. And it's another one of those little things that seems it's like counterintuitive. It yeah. just seems very natural for people to want to practice come. Sit, sit, stay, stay come. Back away, back yeah. away. And okay, come. <laughs> and the dog just knows as soon as you take X amount of steps back, whatever you do, they're watching your body language. So if you take 20 steps away and turn and face them and call them, the next time you take 20 steps, turn, they're going to be on their way to you. And then you get into having to correct them for, 
you know, or it's rep- a whole can at, at of least worms. then you start reprimanding them for not staying. Like, yeah. oh, stay, stay. It's confusion. It's and mixing then, too And then many they're like, okay, I'll stay. And then like, come. And like, shit, I thought you just said stay. You when know. you do the quirky tip, it almost goes half the episode. And that concludes this week's quirky <laughs> dog that's, podcast. That's the quirky tip of the day. I do not have laryngitis, by the way, but I am wearing my new shirt, Heavily Meditated. I'm really loving this one. It's my first Instagram buy that wasn't like a drunk Instagram buy. I was scrolling through and I'm like, yeah, baby, I'm going to get that. Okay, so we are talking today about the new position statement from the AVSAB, which what is the, hell the is American AVSAB? Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. So oh, it's not the AVMA, great. but it's... How long has that um, organization been around? I don't know. This isn't Q&A about mid, that mid organization. mid-70s. We're going on 40-plus 40, oh. 40 years with this organization. It, it really, it has been, And it's huh? a, um, a group of behavioral veterinarians. Well, no, and you can just be a DVM, and some of them are just uh, research scientists and everything else, but you have to have specific academic titles to be a member of this organization. That's neither here than th- or, or PH, there. Or that PhD. makes that makes a lot of sense. That's great. Um, the thing that just happened this past week is they came out with a new position statement on humane dog training, and they're taking an active stand against all aversives, um, no matter what it is, whether it be a spray bottle or a shaker can or prong collars, whatever. All aversives in dog training, they're saying that they shouldn't be used, and that there should only be humane dog training methods. Used. Well, there's a lot of science behind what they're saying, though, isn't there? According to the article, yes. I mean, there's many, many references to scientific studies to prove their point here. There are. And our point more so than anything, which typically is our point, is how much does a vet truly know about training? Because when a vet's going to vet school to get a DVM, they're learning a lot about medicine, as would be expected if you're going to medical school to get an MD. So training, one, a lot of times you get a lot of experience with hands-on stuff, and two, that's a lot to learn within a certain amount of program. So we're going to discuss some points of the article. You went to Clicker Expo how many years ago now? Uh, I went in 2005. Yeah, and the reason really we're enjoyed it. Clicker Los Expo. Angeles Clicker Expo, the Karen Pryor Academy. Yeah. It was right before they were uh, they were just on the verge of starting the academy or what is it called the thing for yeah the Clicker um, Karen Pryor Academy. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the first people to want to sign up. I talked to them while I was at the expo and said, I want to sign up for this. It was like, I don't know, 2000 bucks, something like that. How many years ago was it though? It was 2005. Okay. 2005. So 15, 16 years ago. And, uh, I was all about it. I had a really good time at the Academy. I learned, or not at the Academy, but at the expo. And it opened my eyes to a lot of new ways of training. I met some European people that were really good dog trainers that I enjoyed working with. And I had my dog there and we worked on some stuff, but the thing that put the brakes on for me, I had a dog training business at that time. And I was doing traditional dog training with, um, you know, choke chain, prong collars, e-collars, things like that, uh, using food, but I was using traditional tools. And they said, well, you cannot be, uh, a gra- uh, you cannot have the academy credential if you use any type of aversive. And I thought, well, I know that what I'm doing works. I don't, I'm new to this new way of training. And I just was not willing to make the commitment to shut everything down that I had been doing that had been successful up to mm-hmm. that point and just jump into this whole new way of training. So I, and I was kind of put off that they were giving me that ultimatum. And I'll tell and you. And it's a lot of money. Scott was willing to fork out the money to <clears throat> go through the certification process and he wanted to learn, but you can't even, you know, I guess you could learn, but not use the certification. I don't know. But anyway, a lot of people that are certified do still use tools and everything else kind of in the background. And that's neither here nor there. But Scott was interested. He liked the stuff. And they said, you can't do what you're doing and be a part of what we're doing. What I would, you know, it seems really inclusive or exclusive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I like more the Buddhist philosophy of, you know, uh, I've read where the, you know, people have asked their Buddhist teachers, do I, ha- do I have to stop drinking if I, you know, get involved with this Buddhist organization? And they say, no, you can continue doing whatever you'd like. But if you start working, you know, meditating and start living this lifestyle, you'll find that you no longer have a desire to drink or to do these other things that are because not the new way good is for better you. than the old. So way. if this new method of dog training is honestly superior to the old traditional method, then I would think that people that are start doing this immediately are just casting away all these old tools because what they're doing is working so much better than what worked before. There's no need to go back and do that other stuff. Yeah doesn't seem to be the case, though. <laughs> well, this, this statement ruffled some feathers. There were a lot of shares on it. One thing to me that's interesting is it's like intra-group fighting, fighting, right? So now we're talking like within a group. So when I think about dog training groups, I think, you know, purely positive people or, you know, people that don't want to use tools versus balanced trainers or people that do use aversive tools. <clears throat> now we're talking about kind of this intra-group fi- fighting where there's a positive group going after a positive group because taking a stand against all inver- aversives also excludes all the Lima people, which is least invasive, minimally aversive. I think in our behaviorist episode, I said least intensive. I wasn't sleeping a lot then, but it's least invasive, minimally aversive. Well, if it's minimally aversive, it's still aversive. So this organization now is taking a stand against that. And a lot of it is neither here nor there. You know, you can go and see a vet and they can have an opinion and you can do what you want. But if somebody walks in who's, you know, a DVM and they're a member of this organization and a client walks in with a prong collar, now do they say something? Now, can that person not enter with tools? Should they go to another vet practice? Like, it gets kind of hairy. It's kind of a, a slippery slope, I would say, as to what are you really trying to prove and why are you trying to prove it? And a lot of it goes back to what we always talk about and what we're concerned about is going back to medication. I was going to say meditation because I see it, but it's medication. So the dog now is having behavioral issues, working with a purely positive certified trainer. They're not making much headway, so then they medicate. And there's a lot of kind of references to that in the article as well. You liked the line about it should be understood that animals are sentient and should be treated with respect and compassion. You compared to that to your... Well, they use sentient, meaning, you know, this dog has feelings and, 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 and I agree. You know, I, even though we can't, I guess there's a lot of science behind it, but I can tell from working with dogs that they have feelings and they can, you know, bond and, and we can communicate without words and all that stuff. But so do our kids and so do all the other humans on the planet. And uh, I was in, you know, the Marine Corps and they weren't doing purely positive when I was there. Trust me. <laughs> He's like, you I know, was a sentient being. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here I was, this sensitive teenager and they're like, we don't give a flying fuck. Get your ass up, you know? And, um, so it, it seems like, and then like we talked about police dogs and military dogs, they seem to get a, a, complete, a, pass. a free pass yeah. from all these positive organizations. Yeah, if a dog comes they're... home overseas and it, you know, is all decorated in medals and did something big and heroic and it's wearing a prong collar, not everybody's jumping on board and saying, oh my God, that's wrong. The dog shouldn't have been trained that way. The dog's just a national hero. So you see a lot of that mixed stuff. Yeah, and I think dogs do know right and wrong. If you're going to say they're sentient beings, they're friggin' smarter than half the people I work with. They're certainly <laughs> smarter than a lot of their owners that I work with, and they get a read on people super quick. They know when they're being idiots. They know when they're not, depending on whether or not they've had some training and whatnot. And um, there needs to, in my opinion, there needs to be some consequences. You know, well, I mean, we, it doesn't have to mean dogs. that they're getting pain put on them, but I will say, and I do use this quite often with people, uh, I use stress as a consequence not physical pain but emotional stress i want the dog to know that wasn't right 
And it doesn't mean that you're hammering them with an e-collar or banging them with a pinch collar. But just by shaking them up emotionally, hey, let's go, you know, get back, get back on the Interrupting bed. Interrupting the behavior. Interrupting the will. behavior yeah. and making them think, oh, shoot, I got to do this, you know. And, of course, they're sentient beings, and I'm sure that they get emotional during those times, and they probably question whether or not I'm really a nice guy or an asshole. And half the time they say, yeah, he really is an asshole. I, I say he was that. Good. I say that sometimes, too. Um, the thing about it, though, is they're talking about if you have more serious problems like aggression, anxiety, fear, you'll require a treatment plan um, that includes environmental management. That's a big one. Behavior modification, and then in some cases, uh, medication. And in our experience, the people that, especially the clients that we know that have gone to you know these veterinary behaviorists, these behaviorists, and they've gotten these protocols, they're very extensive. It's not like, you know, okay, we can get this handled in a week or a month, like there's weeks and months and sometimes years of a process to get these things done. And it's also really big money. So how effective is all of that in the long run? And is it really doing what's best for dogs and owners is one point that I'm a little concerned about. Well, the environmental management, to put that into a more practical um, term, is not leaving your house, not leaving the yard. If your dog's reactive on a leash, you don't walk down the street because there's too much going on in the environment. Your dog's getting too reactive. So you walk your dog in the backyard, uh, or you the, only go out. The world becomes smaller. You only and smaller go out at night smaller. when everybody else is asleep and all the other dogs are in their home. I mean, that's environmental management, and t- to a certain extent, you know, early on in the dog's training, I can see how you don't want to throw the dog into a lot of distraction when they're not ready for it. But to go on for months, and I, you know, we've had people come in that have done the positive, purely positive uh, reinforcement training for eighteen months with commitment. And couldn't do anything with their dog. Yeah, I guess you know? that's my issue. And I was going to get to it later on in the article. But talking about like, okay, who are you going to refer? It, they're only referring certified trainers, right? And I cannot tell you how many times we're working with people, like Scott said, that put in the grunt work, like a half an hour a day for, you know, months at a time, literally training a lot of hours. If we put that kind of time into our dogs per day, like amazing <clears throat> things can happen in that amount of time or months or years of certain programs at the MSPCA and everything else. And they just haven't gotten anywhere. And if they can have a class or two with us or work with us for four sessions or, you know, get everything handled within a month after that period of time, they're so grateful. Like, they didn't even know that it was possible. So, well, Could I interrupt real quick? It's not that the people don't get anywhere. They do teach behaviors, but they can't work those behaviors within a realistic setting. setting yeah. with, this, with any kind of distraction, it falls apart. So it makes, you know, my job a lot easier because the dog does know sit down, all these other things. But they need to learn you you have to stay in this sit, for example, even though another dog is walking by, even though this is happening. Yeah, real world application. Yeah, so you can actually walk down the street with your dog, you know. So a lot of times dogs that come in with the positive foundation where the people have put in a lot of work, it's a much easier train for me because the dog does understand the behaviors. They just don't know that they have to do it even when they don't feel like it. Yeah. That's really the big cue, you know? That gets into the line I want to talk about too. But first, let's go to break. And when we get back, we're going to unpack this more. Does your dog lack self-control? Are you looking for some answers? Would you like your dog to be calmer? Does your dog lack confidence? Canine MindShift. Enroll in a free course today. Simply go to caninemindshift.com. That's caninemindshift.com. 
Okay, so Scott brought it up um, quickly, but this is something that is a big deal for us because we see it over and over again, and it seems like dogs are getting less compliant just to even work with us domestically like they used to. And this line, um, it's in the frequently asked questions, and you guys can Google this. It's the position statement of the AVSAB. You can read this. It's a four-page article. But one of the questions was what techniques should be avoided in training And within that answer, it says the learner must always feel safe and have the ability to opt out of training sessions. Well, I don't know, like if it's teaching the dog to go up the stairs, then to what degree is it when the dog should be able to do the stairs? Or if the dog is being taught to stay in a crate and be conditioned to a crate, what is the time frame where the dog should actually be able to stay in a crate? And Scott brings this up all the time, and it's a good point. How many freaking first graders want to sit there on a nice day when it's sunny outside and sit in a chair all day and learn? Like, they may want to opt out of that. At some point, like, I want to opt out of things often. Like, life isn't about opting out. Half of those first graders are sentient beings, for sure. Be nice. (laughs) But literally, (laughs) these types of things where we're talking about they always need to have the ability to opt out. Well, what if... When does that stop? Like, what if the dog always opts out? And that is frequently something that you see. You see dogs that are less compliant to get their nails trimmed. You'll see dogs that have more fear of things. You'll see that dogs that don't want to walk on different surfaces. And it's not that big of a learning curve. It's just if they've had months and years of, oh, it's scary, I can't do it, and trying to counter condition it, sometimes it can become an even bigger deal than it even needed to be in the first place. Well, they, they learn how to opt out. That becomes their go-to. That is, that as, is soon a, as, you, as soon as you want to teach them something that's like, ah, not feeling it today. That's true. Well, there well, are many dogs, yeah, that lay down, sure. lay down on a leash while you're walking them. They lay down. They start vocalizing. They start doing these things because they know that that gets them out of stuff, and then it's all over and done with. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting was they were talking about this study about recalls because obviously a lot of people use e-collars for dogs and recalls. And there was this study that came out in 2020. And when I briefly read it, it was, you know, small sample sizes, like three different groups, 10 dogs in each group and everything else. But what they did when they did the dogs train with shock collars is they use manufacturer nominated trainers. And I found that really interesting because the way the manufacturer teaches you to use the collar is not in fact how Scott and I would use the collar. They want you to be married to a collar forever to keep buying this product, which makes sense. That's good sales, you know? So they say dog come, the dog doesn't come. There's warnings. Then you call them, everything else. We overlay it. So dog come is dog come and hit the stimulation. So it's becoming a reflex. If the collar's dead or you don't have the collar on the dog or something else, it's just an automatic response. So I'm not sure about the intricacies there, but I can tell you if you gave us 50 dogs from the shelter that were very independent and you gave any positive trainer in the country 50 dogs that were very independent from a shelter, we would be able to get most of those dogs coming consistently when called because that's our business. And it's been my business with Scott for the past 10 years and yours for going on 20 years now. Like that does happen. You can get dogs to come and be off leash reliably with distraction with e-collars pretty well. That's why they're still such a successful tool. And happy. Yes. Oh, very much so. Eating food. Yeah. And, and they're happier because they have more of a life. Like Scott was saying, some of these management protocols just mean that the dog's world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And that sucks then. Like if you can't go hiking with your dog for, you know, the 10 to 15 years that it's with you, that's limiting what kind of access it has to the world and to fun. I think um, this is a very small, small um, fragment of the veterinary industry and profession. This is a very small, this small This group piece. is a smaller group within them. And yeah. it's, it's a behavior organization and they can have whatever stance they want. Like to each his own, that is fine. But to mix veterinary care and then behavior is like, it's just very strange well, because the key, they're two different camps. It's the, like, well, go ahead. Just, uh, yeah. The one crossover, the true crossover between veterinary care and behavior 
is the psychiatric medication. Yes. That is where they meet the two the which, two sides. Which a lot of people are making money on that. But if you're at the if you're at the physician for your yearly physical and I don't know. I guess if you answered yes to the or that no to the question, do you feel safe at home? I don't think now the doctor is going to put away his pap smear kit and start talking to you and opening up to you and having this like psychological conversation with you at that point. I think point. they call social services or the police. At that well, point. Th- theoretically, yeah, they are outsourcing that. Like you can't be the jack of all trades. You're going to the vet for medicine. You're going to the vet for the health of your animal. And we love Western vets. This is not to put them down. Western vets have a huge purpose in our dogs' lives. They've saved our dogs lives many times we have veterinary care for all of our dogs regularly like it's not that all vets are bad but to mix this and make this like this blurred line of okay yes I'm a vet but also I feel this way about behavior they're just not sitting there day in day out seeing the experience that we're seeing and seeing the dogs that we're seeing and getting much results with that in fact I, it's I, go I ahead. think the reason that you get so worked up about this is because on social media it looks like a much bigger thing than it is there's um like 125,000 veterinarians in the United States. I counted how many people were on this website. There's like 100 people on this website. And the website, this organization has been around for like 40 years. But it's a political stance. It's a political stance. But they're very loud. These people that are going this direction, they're typically writers. They're people that are publishing books and this and that. So... They seem to carry a lot of clout. Like, oh, this is this is the real deal. This well, is and I don't like you know? that vets are getting judged by still working with balanced trainers. Veterinary behaviors pretty much don't work with balanced trainers in any way, shape, or form because they don't believe in any of it, and they like to go the medication route more so, along with the you know management and everything else. One thing, I, my, one of my pet peeves about the behaviors is that they don't take the leash and work the dog ever. Yeah. I mean, I know several people that have spent five, 600 bucks to go to a behaviorist who they just are talking like you're talking to a psychologist. Yeah. And then they give you, you know, a printout, a protocol. Yeah. Scott's big on taking the leash and showing the owner what can be done. But for the vets themselves, the older vets are getting judged a lot of times for even recommending trainers that use balance methods or recommending balance tools themselves. Like that shouldn't be the case. If they're a vet that graduated, you know, 30, 40 years ago, then they can say whatever they want to say. And a lot of these new vets, they're trying to create this wave about who's teaching them and what's being said and the benefits of medication and everything else. And it's not that there can't be benefits to medication, but it's on the rise. Like medication is on the rise with all these problem behaviors. And we're seeing a lot of these dogs on medication and the medication isn't helping the behavior in such a way that the owner feels like it's gotten better. However, training is. Training is very important when it comes to these things. And you said, and this is neither here nor there, but like one of the referenced readings, Scott clicked on a few of these things. And there was an article in there about even like counter conditioning, just a buckle collar, the click of the buckle collar that, you know, it could be very aversive to the dog when they hear it and you want to make sure they're comfortable with it. Like at what point now can we not even click a buckle collar in front of our animals without them freaking out? We have to get them to a point where they can tolerate a certain amount of things, their frustration tolerance is dealing and stress is good to promote growth. I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people, if you have a very stressful point in your life, a lot of times that's been the best thing that could have happened to you. It's gotten you out of a situation you didn't want to be in. It's gotten you into a new situation, pushing through college and a degree. There's a lot of stress involved with that, but it gets you and unlocks like this next level of the video game. Stress isn't always a bad thing. Like a little bit of stress can go a long way, in my opinion. I think short-term stress is very good for the dog. It's good for kids. It's good for adults where you have stress on, stress off, because that's what builds resilience in the in the sentient being and um chronic stress is no good for anybody that's when you get into the cortisol and how it your autoimmune system gets weakened because of chronic stress 
I don't have any dogs that have been under chronic stress. You know, in training, there's some stress and then there's play. There's a little stress, stress off. And in the end, there's more confidence. The dog is feeling good about what's going on. There's a clear understanding of what's expected and yeah. they do great. Yeah, and it mentions that, you know, aversive training methods can directly cause or contribute to development of problem behaviors. And just like Scott's saying, like, we've seen thousands of dogs over the years trained with aversives, like in our care. And yes, it's just anecdotal evidence, but those dogs haven't developed more behaviors because of the fallout of the aversives. Has it helped a lot of the problem behaviors? Yes. But we we see this day in, day out, not just us, but other people using these camps. And it's not to argue balanced training. It's just to take a moment and say, your words matter. Like your stances matter. They don't have to involve themselves in position statements like this because really what your clients do on their own terms is their own regard. If they're happy with their dog and their dog's doing well, if you're there training, to treat the dog. If they're training at all. Yes. Thank, thank God. Yeah. Nobody freaking to work trains with their, their dog. dog. Yeah. If they do anything, good, bad, or otherwise, at least they're trying to do something with their dog. You know, one thing that they kind of bug me as they talk about the science of the purely positive and how it's superior and it's proven that this is the best way to do it. Well, if that's true, I mean, I went to Clicker Expo 16 years ago. If it was the best, easiest, fastest way to teach a dog something, you would think it would have just taken off like wildfire and left everybody in the dust. Nobody would ever buy a pinch collar again because you got your clicker and you got your positive reinforcement techniques and you're home free yeah. if it was that clear cut. And what I don't understand is why these people are not more welcoming and open to the people that do use these tools and say, hey, you know, let us show you what we're doing. We think there's a lot here that you could benefit from, but they're, they're more defensive. I mean, I invited personally a positive trainer that I respect, that I met 20 years ago almost, to come on the podcast. No response. Just invited a positive trainer that has, is uh, widely known, too busy, can't be on the podcast. But we have uh, high-profile veterinarians happy to come on the podcast. We had Susan Garrett, who's uh, got a lot of followers and a lot of clout in the dog training world, happy to come on the podcast and talk, you know, and share her message. But the positive people are like, oh, well, if that's not a positive podcast, you know, and if that's not going to benefit me in some way. And Susan Garrett I'm is a positive do reinforcement dog trainer as well. But these people that can hold their own have no problem talking. Like it's it's not it's not even it's just about discussing. It's extending the olive branch. It's opening up communication. No one ever says to me, Oh, how do you make anxiety go away without medication? Oh, what are you guys doing? Can we come out and see? No one asks questions. Like, there's nothing about that. It's just judging. Like, no, you're wrong. This is superior. No, you're right. This is better. And we see it all the time with our clients. And I guess that's what really gets me is they feel bad. Like, they have been browbeaten over and over again about reading what they read on the internet and seeing these different trainers. And no, you can't do this. No, you're doing it wrong. And oh my gosh. And they suck it up. And they either put like a martingale with a chain on their dog or a plastic pinch on their dog, leash pop it a few times. The dog is like working better than they've ever seen. And they said, oh my God, I can't believe how easy. It's almost like magic before their eyes, but they're having such a moral struggle to get there. Why is anyone placing any blame on them for that? No one should be blaming anyone for how they want to eat or how they want to work out or what they want to do. And how you want to train your dog is up to you. Of course, abusing your dog and all of that is not okay in any way, shape or form. But if your dog is understanding what you want, you're being clear with your communication, you're rewarding whenever possible, and you're creating a dog that is comfortable and stable in the world, in your home, everything else, I really don't see what the issue is with that. So this isn't going to create some big wave and 
in my opinion, Petco's Stop the Shock was a big political scheme, in my opinion, that hasn't created some big wave. And if it does create a big wave, wave it up. That's fine. There's still people that need help that call. Tools being banned in this country is a long way off. There are other countries and places in Europe where aversives are banned. Sweden and Switzerland, they don't even allow crating. I mean, there's things that are happening around the world. But as far as our country goes, like Scott says all the time, if they took all aversives off the market... Most of what we did, we could do with the rough wear collar. Like, it's not a big to-do. We can still train dogs. It's not that we need these tools. It's just the judgment and the freaking, like, mind screw that everyone's going through to get their dogs to a point where they can walk down the street with them. We get dogs so we can go hiking, so we can enjoy them, so we can take them places, not just so they can be within our home and maybe have to be on medication for their whole lives. Yeah, and there is, you know, that that phrase, confirmation bias. You know, my clients, many of them, if they're searching online, how do I train the dog? and they're getting this positive websites, pages, this, that coming up. Of course, that's what none of us want to put any pain on our dog. None of us want to use an aversive on our dog. We want to get the dog trained in the most humane way possible. Absolutely, I'm the same way. So they gravitate towards that naturally because that's what we all want. And then they start working and, and typically... They're not having a lot of success. Yeah, and, and so then they call me and they're like, oh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't want to use these negative tools. It's wrong and all this stuff because they've read all this stuff and they got their head full of this stuff, you know. And really, I would say the resistance from our clients these days is way less than it was about eight years ago. And that could be about how we are. But we're not hearing as much pushback of that. People are calling and being like, I need freaking help. Uh, nothing I'm doing is working. It, sometimes it's honestly getting worse. Like they're working with certain trainers and it's getting worse. A lot of times the positive reinforcement trainers in our area won't call someone back. They'll do a few classes with them and then all of a sudden they can't get yeah. a hold of them anymore. They get too busy in their schedule and everything else. That's not providing help to people. Like these people are out here suffering saying, I just want to be able to take my dog for a walk like the neighbor can do down the street with her dog. So yeah, if the dog doesn't respond to their training methods... They, the trainer just won't call them back. I mean, yeah. the people are calling us. I'll say, why don't you keep going with the other trainer? They won't call. They're too busy. They won't call me back. I've never been too busy that I can't work with someone that needs dog training. Especially that's, that's been a current they're client. To, they're willing to pay me. And it's, I, and that's a, how I make a and living. And it's a current client. Like, that's just not heard of. And then aversives. Also, like, when does it stop? So do we not use Bitter Apple anymore? A lot of people like that kind of product. If, you know, a dog's chewing furniture or something else, like, that's aversive. When I just Googled aversives and dogs, that popped up. Like, where does it stop? And not only that, what does the world look like if there's absolutely no aversive at all, even if it's just minimally aversive? So it's a little bit of food for thought. Um, uh, you don't need to go in and grill your vets for the most part. You know, everybody needs to have a harmonious relationship with their vets and vets are busting their asses doing the best they can. But honestly, trainers are too. And we are two trainers out there in New England and we are seeing day in, day out people struggling and often working with multiple other trainers not just positive reinforcement trainers, sometimes other balance trainers and everything else, and getting nowhere. And then if we can help them get somewhere in this short amount of time and make their lives easier, I really don't see the big issue with that, in my opinion. And if you are using all positive reinforcement and you're happy with that, more power to you. I think that's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you've tried it and you're not having success, it doesn't mean you can't get your dog trained. You just need to open up the possibilities, the options, try something else. Because if you've done a lot of positive reinforcement training, your dog, chances are your dog does know a lot of behaviors right now. It's just you're having trouble with your distractions. That's typically where it goes. Yeah. And reaching across the aisle would be good for all of us. Scott talked about my blog post, staying in your own lane and wearing your muzzle. And it's kind of like that. If you're a vet, 
maybe stay in your lane. If you're a trainer, stay in your lane. You talked about part of the reason that people aren't trusting the government is because, what did you say, politicians? Oh, the, the politicians are acting like doctors, and the doctors are acting like politicians. Yeah, I thought so that was believes a, I thought that was fascinating. So we're all sitting there trying to, like, you know, this was some article he read the other day, but we're all sitting there trying to just get out of our lanes and be the, you know, the all-knowing source. That's not what life is. Like, there's specialties, and there's people that are professionals in certain things. So be conscientious of what you're supporting, what you're reading, what you're internalizing, and if it works, and just think outside the box. If we reached across the aisle a lot more on dogs, I think we would make a lot more progress. We have a lot of big issues with shelters and health concerns and breeding, and there's a lot of big, big issues in this country fighting now within a group of you know, positive reinforcement trainers or vets and trainers fighting and veterinary behaviors not working with certain trainers. Like, that's crazy. Like, let's just try to help dogs the best we can for the betterment of dogs and society. That's where I stand. And I'm still learning every day. Exactly. And the dogs are the ones teaching me. I am still seeing, and it's amazing to me now after being a professional trainer for just about 20 years now, that I'll get a dog in, we're working. It's like, oh, never seen that before. Yep, got to like, change course. We're it. learning yeah. every day. So the yeah. more answers that someone has, an organization, a trainer, an individual, the, sometimes the more concerned it is to leave. Like that, that's, a, that's a warning sign. Like you can't know it all in this industry. Yeah, You're say, always if learning. If they say this is the only way to go and, and we know it all, then, you know, be careful. Yeah, there's probably, no better. They're, probably they're a bullshit artist and they're just going after your credit card. There's you know? no better experience than hands-on training in our opinion. And we keep learning day in, day out. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Next week, we're going to talk about dominance in dog training. And in the meantime, keep it quirky. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.